my wife and I have started to become a fan of that Fixer Upper show. Yes. And you know, that lady, Joy, has her own furniture line. Chip and Joanne have, um, is it Magnolia, I guess? Is that what it's called? I, I, everything else is called Magnolia, so I assume that's also what the furniture line's called. So we were in a furniture store this weekend, and they had a whole section dedicated to their furniture. We found uh, a rug that was perfect for our porch. It was really nice, kind of nice designed. It's got that classic shabby chic, country chic kind of feel to it, you know. Right. And then a little tiny rug that would look really nice in our bathroom. Over $300. It's more than I feel is appropriate to spend on a rug. At least they're bringing the economy back to Waco, Texas, right? Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and digital patient engagement strategies for hospitals, healthcare systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on the digital tools, solutions, strategies, and processes that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information and have fun along the way. And now, here are your hosts, Reed Smith and Chris Boyer. All right, here we are, episode 71. Thanks, as always, to Michael Vinsky for bringing us in. I am Reed Smith, joined by Chris Boyer on the other side of the microphone. Hello, Reed. We are, well, one in Texas and, and one in Minnesota. So back to back to normal after a few, I guess, a few weeks of at least some of our recordings and stuff um, mm-hmm. being when we were in the same location. So somewhat back to normal, and it's summertime, and it's feeling fine. Yeah, that's a song, right? <laughs> I think so. I just suddenly uh, thought, yeah, maybe that was a song. That's going to be on my mind the rest of the show now. If anybody hears me typing, I'm looking, trying to figure out what that song is. But. <laughs> well, I can't believe we made it to episode 71, Reed. I mean, we are just creeping closer and closer to that 100 mark. You think, well, that's, you know, that's 29 weeks from now. You know, that's a long time. But, you know, I mean, this is this is going by relatively quick. I, well, you know, as we've started thinking about, have we done this topic before? You know, we'll start looking and it's like, oh, that was way back at episode 31. You know, so, I mean, that was... <laughs> you know, 40 episodes ago and stuff. So anyway, it's been, it's been interesting. I appreciate all the support. Matter of fact, saw a note. I don't know if you saw this, Chris, but saw a note on LinkedIn today. Matter of fact, Hmm. Uh, Aaron Fox, uh, he's a chief experience officer at a hospital here in Texas, uh, mentioned on LinkedIn that he was uh, on vacation at the beach and getting caught up uh, on our podcast. Oh, what a horrible way to spend a vacation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, the picture looks nice. But so anyway, but we, we certainly appreciate all the support. If you haven't, uh, be sure to surf over to touchpoint.health. Check out uh, any of our back catalog, of course, but also the other shows that we've mm-hmm. launched uh, on the Touchpoint Media Network. So absolutely. And while you're out there, you may want to check out some of our sponsors. In fact, we always like to start off the show doing a tip of the hat to some of our sponsors. And today we want to talk about um, one of the ones that's been around since almost the onset, which is Loyal. Read, you know, Loyal's AI-driven platform provides health systems with the tools they need to amplify patient feedback and guide patients through their digital journey. They have a wonderful team of, of multidisciplinary skill sets of engineers, marketers, data scientists, all kinds of really smart folks over there. And loyal partners with some of the nation's leading health systems to promote uh, patient loyalty, 
uh, through the smarter digital patient experience. Maybe uh, Aaron better take a look at them because he's the chief experience officer, right? That's right. Well, all he needs to do and all you need to do if you're listening in is to get more information and even schedule a demo, which we highly recommend, jump on over to their website, loyalhealth.com. Be sure to tell them that we sent you, say a touchpoint sent you along this way, and uh, get a demo from those smart guys to learn more about their product and their platform. I'm kind of excited about this week. It's, it's something a little bit different than I think we've done from a show format, at least, uh, in some time. Uh, we have not uh, directly talked about a particular platform. We've talked about all these platforms, obviously, in and amongst mm-hmm. other episodes and things like that. But uh, we're going to talk about Twitter. Whoa. And uh, the reason that's kind of interesting is because that's how most of us met originally. Yeah, I think a lot of the people that we know now, we've originally started, if not augmented our relationships, using Twitter as a way to communicate real time. So yep. it's been a long time, Reed. It has. It has. I, I joined Twitter in the fall. I don't remember if it was October or November but it was the fall of 2007. So Twitter was about maybe six months old or something like that. You know, it's you know, 10 and a half-ish years at this point. Uh, so we've all been on here for a decade now. So we thought we'd talk a little bit about this. We've got a really interesting um, interview later on in this episode with Greg Matthews from W2O and some of the research they've done around physicians in Twitter. And so I won't spoil that. Mm-hmm. But I thought maybe we could talk initially about, uh, before we get into some of the impacts on healthcare and some of those types of things, just the evolution of the platform itself. I would mm-hmm. assume most people, if not everyone listening, they may not actively use it, but they probably have a Twitter account or the institution they work for certainly has a Twitter account maybe. And Yeah, I think that most organizations now are expected to have a Twitter account. Uh, again, whether they use it or how they use it can vary a lot, but also individuals having their own Twitter accounts is very common. It's almost become you know the a, a better way to communicate with people than over email in times um, because it's an open shared platform that a lot of people use and everyone kind of uses it including celebrities and politicians and all of that you know it's funny I, you mentioned celebrities and i'm a big basketball fan so of course I watch the nba finals and things like that mm-hmm. and as as i've thumbed through my twitter feed or seen tweets that athletes have pushed out celebrities obviously do this as well i see a lot of advertising you know, you'll see the hashtag ad at the end. It's just a written tweet. And I would assume the athlete or the celebrity is not actually doing that. Somebody at an agency or their PR firm or their you know PR person personally or manager or somebody is pre-scheduling all that stuff. You know, I was recently talking to a PR agency about this very thing, about how many of their clients that they actually ghostwrite their Twitter accounts for. And what they've said is that PR agencies were doing that, or agencies were doing that for uh, companies. But now more and more companies, in particular their executives and their CEOs, are being trained on how to use Twitter. You would assume that, to a certain extent, that maybe it's a mix, that you know half of it's you and maybe half of it's what your agent is doing for you. You know, people are continuing to look for ways to get in front of certain users, certain demographics, right? You know, what what I have seen, I guess, um, in, in this evolution is that we're starting to see it flatline to some degree. 
Yeah. But strangely, kind of like podcasting, I feel like it's kind of a resurgence at the same time. I don't know. Flatline meaning at the beginning of 2017, there were like 300 million users, and now there's like 328 million users. So I guess, you know, when you're getting up to numbers of that size, the adoption rate kind of slows a little bit. There's fewer people to create a new account. And from an activity standpoint, that's really what we're talking about here is, yeah, and this comes from a, um, an article Top Dog Social Media put out. Yep. And we're talking about active users, not actual Twitter accounts. Because, you know, if you're a good hacker from Russia, you could probably create hundreds of thousands of Twitter accounts. But really what we're talking about is active real users, right? Right. But I guess that's why you don't really count the number of followers anymore on Twitter, although it is maybe a, a lagging indicator of, of your, you know, your ability to communicate and your reach. But really, it's not the leading indicator anymore. Although that makes me wonder, Reed, like how many uh, Twitter followers do you have right now? Somewhere right around 11,000. So I'm just shy of 10,000. And the point is, though, they say here in this article that Twitter users are three times more probable to follow brands than Facebook users. I can see that because I use Twitter strictly for business. Like I don't tweet out what I'm having for lunch or what where with my kids or vacation or mm-hmm. uh, any of that kind of stuff. You know, there's probably, let's see, how many tweets have I sent out? 9,920 tweets. I bet you 20 of the 9,920 have something not to do with healthcare or non-healthcare tweets. I use Twitter strictly for business. I use Facebook strictly for personal stuff. Why don't we go into some more of these stats here, right, that we found in this article? Because this is a really interesting infographic. They talked about how many Twitter users are engaging brands. They say that uh, 33% of active users are sharing opinions about products and companies. And 32% of active users make recommendations of products on Twitter. 33% of active users that share opinions about products and companies, is that that's probably solely made up of people complaining about airline companies, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and trying to get a free upgrade to first class because they were you know, delayed or something. I do think because this is, you know, some people or brands early on, but also now um, use Twitter as a help desk, whereas Facebook, maybe not as much, maybe more so recently. I would have never have thought of going to Facebook and, you know, saying, you know, this didn't work or, you know, whatever. I would have done Twitter. That seems more instantaneous to me. I think it's safe to say that Twitter has firmly entrenched itself as a customer experience, service recovery, you know, help desk type of function. Right from users and brands, but they also ask for recommendations. 30% of active Twitter users ask for recommendations on -hmm. products and brands. So, I mean, I think that it's like this open platform where people are doing a lot of different things and about a third of them are talking about brands. If you look at like in the same chart, they've got kind of a Twitter versus email type scenario. Mm -hmm. And I mean, even amongst just the people that I know, I may send them a tweet because I know it's less cluttered than their inbox probably. Uh, so also kind of along that evolution path, mm-hmm. uh, let's talk a little bit about features and functionality. I, I know, you know, when we all first signed up for Twitter, everything was pretty straightforward. Uh, you had a username, you know, you could send out tweets. There is a search query that you can do inside of Twitter, mm-hmm. and it will pull all of your tweets from a time period. So you, yeah. you, you can search for your username, and then there's some parameters you can put in there. Uh, if you want to see your tweets from like, you know, January 2007, 
Mm-hmm. And it's really pretty funny to go look at it and just look at how your personal evolution um, has been. Back then, it was just random comments and things like that. And then along came hashtags, which was not a Twitter thing. It was a user-created thing so people could you know follow along. And then kind of after that became you know, tweet chats based off of hashtags. Yeah, and you know the use of the hashtag, it's become sort of like the social way to search or the social way to tag. It's almost become taxonomy across social media because you know ta- the hashtagging extended over to the other social platforms because yep. of its uptake in Twitter. And then we've seen the platform evolve to some degree based off of what uh, we know people want. Uh, so mm-hmm. like a couple of big things I can think of is, is Periscope. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So kind of the live streaming aspect, you know, or video, you know, became part of Twitter. I don't, I don't even know when that, when that kind of came about a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. something like that. Um, yeah. Actually, maybe more than that, three years ago, maybe four years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I remember at the time it was like, um, you know, do you use Periscope or Meerkat? Remember Meerkat? I do. I had both. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, then they had ways that, you know, now you can tag people in pictures instead of using their Mm -hmm. handles in the tweet itself that takes up space. Mm -hmm. Um, You can, you know, associate locations with the tweet, you know, some of that, you know, kind of geotagging kind of stuff. Uh, And talking about length, you know, we've now gone here just recently from 140 to 280 characters. Which in some cases could be a really good thing, but in other cases it's just proved to be a kind of a bad thing, I think. I really appreciated the fact that Twitter forced us to be concise in 240 Mm -hmm. characters. And Mm -hmm. I feel a little bit odd, even to this day, typing past the 240 character mark. I'm thinking that I'm getting a little bit too long in the tweet. Too long in the tweet. Yeah, is that uh, that's also a saying that's been around, right? <laughs> Isn't that something? Um, well, I, you know, Dr. V, one of our hosts of the uh, uh, the exam room, and of course he's had a very popular blog for a lot of years, 33 Charts, uh, wrote a post about moving to 280 characters. And, and I think he had a lot of the same you know sentiments that, are, that we're expressing now, which is... Um, I, there's something to the brevity of it, you know, and, and having to be more strategic about what you said. Mm-hmm. And especially if you're putting in handles and links and hashtags and all these things. And so now I can see where the move to 280 characters just means, oh, good, that's 111 more hashtags I can fit in. I think that there is, there's been studies shown around how many hashtags should be in a tweet anyway in order for it to seem less spammy. Hey, we want to take a moment to thank one of our sponsors, and that's our good friends at Binary Fountain. You know, as a healthcare marketer, it's probably pretty obvious these days how much time you're spending uh, on reviews, ratings relative to hospitals, physicians, all that kind of good stuff. You know, too many of those are going unanswered, and they're certainly not being analyzed. This could be costing us new and current customers. It could be impacting our patient experience scores and potentially impacting our revenue. Luckily, our good friends at Binary Fountain have an online reputation management platform called Binary Health Analytics. If you'd like to learn more or even schedule a demo, visit them online at binaryfountain.com. That's binaryfountain.com. What about this other thing, Reed, where people are using Twitter as a way to kind of cluster conversations or trying to group conversations together? You've seen this where reporters start to tweet out a, an article or a news story through Twitter. The first tweet has a one in front of it, and then the next one that they're replying mm-hmm. to the original tweet is a two, and then a three, and then a four, and then a five. I mean, this whole reply 
capability to reply to your own message and start to develop a thread, a conversational thread. For me, that's an interesting application, but um, how many, do you see healthcare systems doing that? You know, I have not seen a hospital or, you know, do it. Um, mm-hmm. or, or other brick and mortar type hospital. I've seen physicians do it. You know, we've seen it seems like, and maybe I'll get this wrong, but it seems like we, I saw Wendy Sue Swanson do this at one point. Howard Lux, uh, the orthopedic surgeon uh, that we all know, he's done it and, and done it very successfully. I've got one of his pulled up here, and mm-hmm. it looks like there are 14 tweets. Mm. Wow. So he has them numbered. And it's funny, he ends it with one slash question mark. When he starts, it's like, okay, well, you know, this is the first one, but you don't know of how many. Mm-hmm. And when he finishes, it's 14 on 14. So okay. I guess you know you're done at that point. And what's curious about that is I think, number one, that's a, that's an interesting way to, to push out some long foreign content on a platform that's not built for that. So you can argue, is that a good idea or not, I guess. But I think what's interesting, and I'd be curious to talk to Howard about this, is you know I'm looking here, and he has at least one uh, comment, which would be that means it's the next tweet in that chain, right? So in all cases, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six. So six of the 14 is just him posting the next one. But on all the other ones, there are multiple respondents other than just his him being the respondent, you know, i.e. the next tweet in line. The initial one has a hundred and twenty retweets and seventeen, wow. you know, additional comments underneath it. And so that's gotta be hard to manage as the originator of the content, doesn't it? Maybe it does. I mean, at least all the content associates together. And I kind of like that concept of being able to comment on a part of the overall cluster of, of tweets, mm. right? And be able to go deep. And when I, I've looked at reporters, when they have these clustered tweets, they may say something and there's a there's a quite a bit of dialogue about that one particular tweet, even though it's part of a larger conversation. So it's almost like you're getting very uh, cliff notes or, or side notes, margin notes from people that are commenting on a particular thing that you're trying to say in the overall message i don't know i just be curious he's getting an awful lot of engagement through this so does that trick not trick maybe it's not the best word but does that what does that do to the algorithm so now do other people see this because it appears as if it's more engaging to be if you're interested in the topic it certainly gives you the ability to go deep and in the way that he's actually using it, we'll link to his Twitter account handle here in our show notes. Uh, the way that he's using it, you can actually see that some of the areas where he goes deep into, um, there are certain areas where people are really engaged in, and others, you know, it's just, you know, he's just responding. But if you measure it as an overall conversational impact in Twitter, mm-hmm. you can add all of those, the all of the numbers together. I'm wondering if there's a good algorithm around how to measure the impact that has on engagement. He's certainly getting it, though. So now I think we're getting into some of the individual versus uh, brand use cases, right? And mm-hmm, so I think, mm-hmm. you know, we've always heard, or at least I've always heard, and I don't even know who to attribute this to, but, you know, that people would rather talk to a person than a brand. Yeah. So I think, number one, that's why this is such a great place for physicians and other providers, clinicians in the space, because people do want to connect with these people. They want that expertise. And this is a great way to get that expertise because you know that... 
well, maybe you don't know with all certainty because of our AI conversations we've had before, but pretty much there are people behind the Twitter account. And those people more than likely will respond because of that, what we talked about earlier, the, the role that, that Twitter has as a sort of a customer service tool that you could start to engage in a dialogue. That's probably one of the quickest and easiest ways to start to talk to people. And two, I think, not that brands are disingenuous, because I, I think that's probably unfair, mm-hmm. but what conversations are brands having? I mean, I don't see them a lot in healthcare. I mean, I, I see a lot of uh, promotion, <laughs> self-promotion, other than being customer service, right? I mean, you get the tweet or you get the Facebook private message or whatever it is that somebody has an issue and you go back and forth on that, sure. But mm-hmm. are brands, so like, let's take one of these tweet chats, for example. Are actual brands participating in those chats? I don't think so. I see more individuals, individuals that represent brands, perhaps. Individuals that, that tweet on behalf of other brands. And they're sharing ideas and strategies that they're doing with one another, but they're not the brands themselves. I don't see like a brand participating I mean, I'm just thinking personally, like if I'm sitting there in a tweet chat and all of a sudden some hospital pops up in the middle of a tweet chat, because I don't know who it is. But let's just say a hospital shows Mm -hmm. up and starts participating in the breast cancer social media chat. Yeah, that is like a, a nurse or a clinician or a physician that's actually participating in that conversation, not just the social media. If it's the marketing director from the hospital, what in the world are they doing participating in here? That's right. In, unless they have a personal experience around it, but then they need to personally participate. I don't think there's anything wrong with the marketing director participating in the tweet chat. That don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I think that's great. I think they should. But we need to know that that's that person and here they are participating. If they're representing the organization, like what what value can they provide to that conversation other than to spout off what they offer? And then it comes off as a little bit salesy, right? right. If you do that. We have this technology and the, these types of physicians and, the, you know, well, that's not what these tweet chats are for. And so it's really odd. Like, I don't know how a hospital participates unless... They can employ, and then they have to like sign the Twitter, the tweet. You know how you've seen like help desk people do that so you know who it was, <laughs> yeah. you know, whatever. So now it's like, you know, Dr. V signing Dr. V at the end of every, you know, tweet or something like that. And I, it, then at that point, if they're going to make that kind of an effort, why do they not just have their own Twitter account and participate? Anyway, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. it's just, I don't know. Can brands even participate in a tweet chat? I have actually seen some brands, not healthcare per se, where the 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 brand Twitter account, I am at this handle, and then they have a Twitter handle for that customer service agent or that particular person on the other end. And so it might be like Comcast David or whatever, you know? And then you actually are starting to have a conversation now with a person that has a branded individual Twitter handle to deal with the service recovery issue, which I think is pretty sophisticated if you think about it. The idea of how you power that is is really an interesting one. That would be hard to do as a hospital because we don't have the volume of customer service. And and that makes me you know wonder. I know recently we were talking about. I may have sent this to you, Reed. That there is uh, one brand that is actually going out there and creating individual Instagram accounts for all of their different individual locations. And and I'm wondering like what is that? How many? 
Twitter accounts should a brand have? And do you need multiple Twitter accounts for your brand? There's an article that I uh, that I just happen to see here on um, that's on LinkedIn. We'll post to it on the show notes. It's called "Does Your Brand Need Multiple Twitter Accounts?" In it, it actually says that brands around the world are utilizing uh, main brand accounts on a day-to-day basis to share to share both shared and owned content related to the brand. Day-to-day usage of their main accounts is comprised of interacting with influencers, etc. But then they have these other accounts that they're using to start to communicate with individuals, just like I was describing before. Do we now, like as a brand, do we have, as a hospital, how many Twitter accounts do you think we should have? Doing these, this project that I've done with some of the states and the state hospital associations, pulling down all the social data their, of their member organizations and things like that, one thing I found pretty quickly was is that most hospitals in the state had numerous Facebook pages, and very seldom did that organization have more than one Twitter account. So what do you think the strategy is behind that? I don't think they have one. <laughs> I think for most people, the strategy around Facebook was pretty straightforward. Or they, they understood how it fit. But they couldn't really figure out what to do with Twitter. And so they just had the one. In a lot of cases, what I would see is like a hospital has, I don't know, let's say six or eight hospitals in a geographic region, right? And they would have a Facebook page of each individual location. Part of that is the physical address and the checking in, the rating and reviews and those Mm -hmm. types of things that Twitter doesn't have, right? Mm -hmm. But then uh, for Twitter, they would just have a Twitter account for the system. And I almost think that you might want to think about your social media plan a little bit differently in that you should have a centralized maybe Facebook account because, you know, Facebook's losing its efficacy every day as being a a platform to use unless you're doing it for advertising. And then you start to look at Twitter as a way where you can start to expand your multiple Twitter accounts because it's A, a lower threshold to begin to get started, to get a communication out there. You could probably develop a niche audience pretty well. And by the way, all your doctors or many of your doctors and many of your C-suite might already be on Twitter. And then you already have sort of a built-in ecosystem. Yeah. I mean, we talk about, you know, advocacy strategies or advocate strategies, uh, influencer strategies, internal communications, physician engagement. And we talked about that last week on the show. All those things you, you could theoretically could do with Twitter pretty easily. Now, you've got to make sure, though, that you've got somebody running these accounts you know, people want that to be somewhat instantaneous, right? Predominantly, if not solely driven via mobile. And so you've got to have somebody within the organization that's trusted to run that handle. Like we can't take 24 hours when someone's like, where I'm, you know, I'm headed there. Where are we supposed to park for digital mammography? Anyway, I, you know, with all that to say, I think there's some, I think it's interesting to me at least, um, the idea that I think the impact is really made via individuals, not brands on Twitter in listen healthcare. Definitely for sure. That, that what you're saying is true because you're going to have more of that one-to-one impact. But there's another article that we'll just briefly touch on about how uh, Twitter is really trying to be used now as an educational tool and really starting to help with population health management and particularly around the opioid crisis. Now, of course, it always starts with the fact that an individual impact on that, the Surgeon General Jerome Adams, 
said his office is tackling the epidemic through education, prevention, and increased access. What they're doing is they're actually using Twitter as one of their main ways to actually get out there through some sort of generic uh, Twitter accounts. Well, not generic, but branded Twitter accounts. Well, I mean, I think, you know, from an education standpoint, I think that makes a lot of sense. I I don't see uh, a reason that, you know, that can't work. I think the difference is, and, and I hate to even say it this way, but it's, you know, how much brand equity do you have? Right. The higher amount of brand equity you have, then you can say things wherever, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, print ads, TV spots, I don't know, whatever you want to do, billboards, mm-hmm. um, and you're going to have an impact. It's just digital allows for that to, you know, hit a larger audience quicker. So, you know, you start talking about, like, the Surgeon General. You start talking about, I mean, anybody in government, right, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. potentially has the ability to do that. And if anything, in the last, you know, couple of years, with the, when you mentioned the government, we couldn't get through a Twitter podcast read without talking the impact that our Twitter presidency is having. His platform is, I'm going to circumvent my communication experts, I'm going to circumvent the media, and I'm going to communicate directly to you. And uh, for good or for bad, and mostly for the bad, Mm -hmm. what the impact that Twitter has in this day and age, it's, it's a way to get directly to a larger audience in a much more impactful way. And we're going to see that impacting all of the way we communicate moving forward, don't you think? Yeah, I think so. So let's, let's look at a couple of things. And I'm not, you know, I don't want to take the side of Trump or, or bash Trump or anything like that. It's not really even about him per se, about what I'm fixing to say. A couple of interesting things there, though. He had a Twitter account before he showed up. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, uh, of course, George W., there there wasn't Twitter. Right. Um, and then Obama came in in, what was that, 08? Then came, you know, the POTUS handle or, or whatever it was that Obama... Was that what he used? Yeah, that's in, in that the was the handle years, that... Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So then that stays with the office. Yep. Trump comes in and is like, nah, I'm good. I'm just going to keep my own handle. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's all bad necessarily. Again, I'm not talking about the person, just the idea of I have a handle with a ton of followers and my own persona, so to speak. You know, why would I change that? You know, well, you could argue that it's the president of the United States. You know, now you're taking your – that's really more of a branded versus an individual play, right? Right, right. Even though it is an individual. So it's a little bit of a kind of a weird – argument there so i'll be curious whether this next time around we get a new president or if it's four more years or whatever it is whatever the next person is you're gonna have to have somebody that has uh that in play prior and what do they do i think to your point the ability that um there really is no filter like he can just say whatever at Mm -hmm. any point in time and he does. Well, I mean, anybody can. But, I mean, he's the president. So, I mean, obviously it gets seen more than if I do it, you know, right. kind of a thing. But whether it's the CEO of your organization, the CEO of other companies, and this has gotten a lot of people in trouble. I mean, we haven't even talking about Trump. I mean, there, there are lots of, I guess, you know, leaders of their organizations that have said things that have uh, ultimately caused some issues. I, one really interesting one right now for me is in the NBA – Jerry Colangelo, who is with the Philadelphia 76ers, he's in upper management there. 
they're still trying to figure this out, but they think he may have had a handful of rogue accounts where he would bash his own players. Why he would do that, I don't know. Maybe it was he was trying to motivate them. And now it's come back that this is this may be him. Yeah. Anyway, it's this really interesting deal, right, where people can hide behind these handles uh, if they want to. I, there's all kinds of things here. So Twitter will constantly evolve, and the way organizations are using Twitter are you know, changing for sure. And we're going to hear from uh, Greg Matthews in an upcoming interview here some of the lessons he learned around how hospitals and physicians are using Twitter and how they're using it as a way to connect with one another. Hey, Chris, before we go too much further, jump into this next segment of the podcast, I did want to uh, mention and thank uh, one of our sponsors, Influence Health. Uh, you know, they've got a consumer experience platform that, that covers several things. And correct me if I'm wrong, but we've we've talked about content management systems on this podcast. Yeah, we did. What about CRMs? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we covered CRMs for sure. And then obviously each and every week we talk about digital marketing. So digital marketing systems, uh, you know, in one way, shape or form have probably been covered, right? That's right. Digital marketing systems. And I would say that we even talk about it in a way of uh, that overall digital consumer experience. Well, there you go. I, you know, I would I would recommend for anybody interested in one of those topics uh, or anything else. They've also got some complimentary solutions on their website. But but head over to their website, take a look at what they've got and what they're offering relative to CMS, CRM, digital marketing systems. Kind of how all that is woven together in what they call their consumer experience platform. Find your way over to influencehealth.com. Touchpoint. Touch counterpoint. There are two sides to every story. Ready, fight! Okay, now we're into um, the face-off segment of our podcast. And Reed, we have been talking a lot about Twitter and and how Twitter is being used, and you know, we covered a lot of ground with that first conversation. But what was interesting about it is we we kind of went to the track of uh, how brands are using Twitter and how individuals at brands are using Twitter, which kind of begs the question: Do you think that brands actually need? Um, a branded a Twitter account, or should they just go all the way in and just have individuals at the at the company that are in you know various different departments and various different roles be tweeting for the company and just get rid of the corporate Twitter account? Yeah, delete all branded Twitter accounts. It's a horrible <laughs> idea. I will concede that maybe um, you have an individual, like you mentioned, Comcast David or whoever earlier. So you could go that route, and that's okay. The, a person identified as being with an organization through their username or their handle, I'm a, that, that's cool. But I believe hospitals specifically, no one wants to talk to the hospital. Like that, that's ridiculous. Uh, and so they need to just get rid of the the pure branded account and find advocates that can participate in conversations online versus promote. That sounds like a really great idea if you really don't care at all about your branding. You need a corporate brand at a Twitter account. You need to have one there because 
first of all, it's a great platform for you to share information and news about your organization. Having a formalized account, it makes it authentic and makes it the official voice of your brand. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have individuals like Comcast David, and let's hope there is no account called Comcast David out there because he's <laughs> going to get a lot of followers. Yeah. But you shouldn't have like a Comcast David out there or, or whatever. But you you need to have your corporate account to be the official authoritative voice where you can actually share information about your brand, your voice, your tone, etc. And that's got to be your your main account that you're spending time with on Twitter. Otherwise, you're distributing your brand too much. It just doesn't work. Mm, no, 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 no. You can still do all the same stuff with individuals, and, and it's more receptive. They can have conversations with people. A brand can't have a conversation. That's weird. Like, I, you know, you don't want to have a conversation with a hospital name and logo. It doesn't go anywhere. And so you could have your patient experience person, patient access, whatever it is, you know, be that connection point for troubleshooting, help desk type stuff, questions, you know, experience feedback, etc. It would be great to have those individuals as part of your brand carrying that message out there and participating online. There's just no downside to it. And from what I've seen, the majority of hospitals don't get any questions on Twitter. Not like Facebook, not like some of the other platforms. I challenge you on that because I think that they do get a lot of questions on Twitter. And and some of those questions are service recovery related. And unless you know that General Hospital George or whoever your your representative is, their Twitter account, who are they going to talk to? They need a general account to go to. It's kind of like if you could take this to the absurd conclusion that you're arguing, Reed, it's like, why don't we just get rid of their websites and and make every individual at the organization have their own website? Let's do that too while we're there. (laughs) If they don't know and they don't have that relationship with that individual at your at your brand, then you know they need that general account to go to. That's your your primary source. If a, let's heaven forbid a crisis occurs in your community, you don't know who to go to. You got to go. You know you can reach out to everyone. If you had all these different brands out there, different peoples with brands, you might be trying to reach out for a patient relations issue to let's say one of the janitors or you know our environmental services guys. You, you might. Be getting the wrong person. How do you know? You don't want to have all these different accounts. You need to have your authoritative account to talk to. Yeah, I just don't think there's enough of that coming in that it matters. I just don't think we have that. I mean, I guess your Mayo Clinics, your Cleveland Clinics, you know, some of the bigger organizations probably do. But you know, the even the larger hospitals that we work with, they just don't get a lot of Twitter questions. Okay, maybe that's fair, right? But I think that if a person that's on Twitter that wants to engage with your brand and they're going to turn to Twitter, if they can't find your brand on there, and by the way, I didn't even get down, go down and argue the path of if you don't claim your brand on Twitter, your competitor or someone that has evil intentions probably will and start sharing negative information about you on behalf of your brand. So you got to, in the very least, stakehold that name. If you're distributed, let's say you're a health system that's pretty large and covers a wide area, yeah, sure, have different you know Twitter accounts for for your different um, major service areas, for sure, that that makes a lot of sense. But you gotta have your single corporate account. I just don't see an organization that can't can survive without that. Yeah. Okay. I mean, so yes, I think 
more than anything else, I think it's harder to understand where to go. I think that's the main reason you've got to have a branded account. So, like, how do you end up at Comcast, David, if there's not a Comcast account? Right. So, I get that. I realistically do feel that the branded accounts, other than for service recovery type stuff, are, are almost useless. I would say that their use is a little bit different than uh, in terms of having those one-to-one conversations with individuals in the community. Their use has to be attributed to you know bigger, better things. But yeah, I would say um, I would say that you know you you definitely want to kind of go that that hybrid line of having both. Incidentally, Reed, uh, Comcast David apparently does have a Twitter mm-hmm. account. <laughs> yeah, his name is. <laughs> Exactly. And he only has 22 followers. For the, so for those of you listening in, we challenge you to let's at least double this guy's Twitter accounts because the last time he's tweeted was in 2013. You see, this is a good example. Like you've got Comcast David. He was doing a good job. Uh, people were coming back to him. He decided to leave and go to the competition. Maybe he went to DirecTV. Now he's DirecTV David or something. And so they had to hire somebody to come in and take over and, like, you know, work the Twitter handle. So Antonio is now stuck with Comcast David. Poor Antonio. (laughs) All right, we're back with the Asked the expert portion of the podcast. I am in Austin and sitting at the W2O offices with Greg Matthews. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Glad you're here. Greg and I go back a number of years to his uh, first move to Austin, uh, or when he first moved to Austin, which has been... Eight years ago. Eight years. Mm -hmm. Wow. Greg and I obviously see each other a number of times throughout the year, including South by Southwest. We're both involved there and all that kind of good stuff. But uh, we're going to talk a little bit about a new piece of research uh, or a new version of a piece of research, maybe is better said, that uh, W2O has spent some years uh, working with and Greg's worked with. And so real quick before we jump into that, though, a little bit about your, your background. My background is actually in the payer space. I worked in Humana's Innovation Center for many years, uh, but for the last eight, I've been working at W2O uh, with an increasing level of focus on healthcare analytics, um, particularly around social, but not limited to social. Uh, I'm currently the managing director for um, analytics and integration uh, at W2O, so I'm helping our clients to understand how to take the right research and analysis and incorporate it into the programs and campaigns that they're developing. Very cool. All right, so we're going to talk a little bit about something that uh, y'all just came up the 20, I guess, 2018 version of, mm-hmm. but it's called the Social Oncology Report. The first one came out in what year? Uh, 2013. So this 13. is actually number six. Wow. Hard to believe. You know, many of you out there may have seen this or downloaded or read previous versions, but just quick 30,000 foot, what, what is the sure. Social Oncology Report? Sure. So uh, this is something that uh, my colleague Brian Reed and I have done together every year since 2013. And essentially what we do around the timing of the, uh, the ASCO meeting, the Society for Clinical Oncology meeting right, in Chicago, sure. we launched this Social Oncology Report. And 
every year it's a little bit different. So, you know, it's actually, it's six different pieces of research. One year is very focused, uh, the first year was very focused on physicians online and, and how they were talking about cancer-related topics. Uh, we've done a focus on patients, we've done a focus on uh, value, we've done a focus on uh, the, physician, the, the demographics of online physicians. But this year, I think, was our by far our most ambitious uh, social oncology report yet um, because we had a section in it uh, that was written by Brian Reed, who now heads our our, uh, our value and pricing practice uh, on value in oncology medicines. But mm. the piece that, that I wanted to, to specifically talk about is the piece that I led, which is focused on the way that online interactions between physicians and hospitals mm. impact hospital reputation. Essentially, the way that we approach this, and, and I have to give credit, um, there's a, a, an oncologist named Nate Pinnell uh, at the Cleveland Clinic uh, who actually asked the question that inspired this report. Uh, he was asking, you know, is there any connection between physicians being online and the reputation score that's incorporated into the U.S. News and, and World Report Best Hospitals list? So what we did is we actually looked at the top 50 rated cancer hospitals in the U.S. News and World Report Best Hospitals list. Okay. Uh, we grabbed the physician reputation score for each of those top 50, and about 27% of that U.S. News and World Report Best Hospitals ranking is based on that expert recommendation. So mm. the physician reputation score counts for about a quarter of that ranking. Um, but we took all those scores, and then we compared those to about 50 different metrics related to the physicians and those institutions. That was the sort of the nuts nice. and bolts of the report. Is there a correlation between how well received your physicians are, how well they perform, and the overall reputation of the hospital? Or you know, what, what did you find? Our focus has always been on online measurements, social measurements, but. We also wanted to include some other things. And so we looked, for example, at the size of the institution in terms of the number of doctors that it employs, uh, okay. the number of oncology specialists, um, the gender breakdown uh, between the clinicians in that institution, um, the uh, average medical school graduation year, so proxy oh, wow. for the age. So we looked at all kinds of offline metrics as well. Uh, one of the interesting things that came out of that was that um, gender parity is actually associated with higher physician reputation scores. Oh, now, wow. it's not hugely uh, statistically significant, but there is a correlation there that says, you know, the closer we are to 50-50 between male and female uh, doctors hmm. in, the, in the cancer center, uh, the higher physician reputation score we're likely to have. So that was kind of an interesting thing. It was, huh. it was not necessarily something we expected. Certainly, it's not surprising. It's, it seems to be consistent with the sort of lots of social research that's indicated that, you know, gender parity teams tend to work better. Some of the things that we've always believed, uh, we had a chance to actually try and prove. Um, and one of the things that we've always believed is that when physicians are online, it does a tremendous amount to engage not only other physicians, but patients, reporters, uh, advocacy organizations, the doctor tends to be uh, have a, what I would call an inordinate amount of influence when they actually maintain a public social presence. We've always believed that. I've been mm -hmm. working in that space for years, as, as have you. 
But it was really interesting to be able to actually go to a hard metric like the physician reputation score from US News and World Report and say, all right, does this stuff we've already always believed correlate? Some of the metrics that we thought would correlate did not. So for example, we looked, one of the metrics we looked at was the total number of followers that the physicians in a hospital had. Does, does it matter if you have physicians that have a whole bunch of followers? Turns out it doesn't. Has, has really no, almost no correlation between that and reputation score. In this case, what we were measuring was, does the doctor have a Twitter account or not? Okay. That's what okay. I say online in this context. That's exactly what I mean. Well, what is you know participating online? What mm-hmm. what is that? What's the definition of that? As we looked at this, we looked at the metrics a couple of different ways. One of them is do they have a Twitter account? Whether they've ever done anything with it or not, if they have an account, that's you know okay. one measurement. Right. We also looked at the average number of posts over the past year, the activity level we did measure. And that has a little bit of impact, a little bit of correlation with the physician reputation score, but not all that much. And so I want to be clear, we're not necessarily looking at individual physician accounts and saying, you know, Dr. X tweeted 10 times and Dr. Y tweeted 1,000 times. We're looking at the average for the institution um, as a way of measuring that. We looked at like the total posts for a year and the average posts per clinician per year. Yeah, we measured both of those things, you know, just being there and then are you active? The percentage of physicians who have a Twitter account has a very strong correlation with the physician reputation score and has a very strong level of statistical significance. That's the one that stood out above all other metrics as having the strongest correlation with the strongest statistical significance. And what it says to us is that there really is something to this idea that physicians are the greatest ambassadors for their institutions, and they are able to do that really effectively when they go onto public social channels to do it. So do you think that says more about the types of physicians that that organization is recruiting, or is it more about that's getting the message of those physicians out there further. I think that to some, to some degree, both of those things make an impact. Now, when you think about this study, remember we're talking about the 50 best, highest-ranked cancer hospitals in the United right. States. Those tend to be academic medical institutions. They tend to be teaching hospitals uh, in many cases. And so, yeah, they, they, are, they do have a different kind of physician that tends to be uh, involved in them. So even in this top 50... The range in size, for example, of these hospitals is it's an enormous range, you know, ranging from less than 100 to almost 4,000. Like, it's a huge range. Number of physicians. Number of yeah. physicians in the, yeah, in, the, okay. in the cancer hospital. You know, everything from Cleveland Clinic, which is really huge, down to, you know, University of Kentucky's Cancer Center, uh, mm-hmm. which was the number 50 ranked, much, much smaller, but the same patterns held true in both. So... I think that there's a lot of applicability to this outside, you know, just the best cancer hospitals. One of the other things we looked at is how much are, how often does the institution engage its online physicians and how often do the physicians engage the institution? And what does that mean to engage them? So in this context, it means to, number one, to follow or not follow their Twitter accounts. Okay. 
It also means to mention or not mention their Twitter accounts from their corporate accounts. Gotcha. Okay. So we ran some numbers this year, and it was it's remarkable how much change there is uh, in the last five years because all but one of these cancer hospitals both followed and mentioned their affiliated physicians, all but one. Now that was a big finding in and of itself, but then it got even better. When a hospital follows its online physicians, 82% of those physicians will follow the institution back. If you don't follow the physicians, only 33% of those doctors are gonna follow. That's the delta between those that are like, you know, super users, if you will, right? So they're, they're gonna go out and proactively find and follow folks versus mm-hmm. those that are maybe a little bit more passive or not, you know, really thinking about, you know, how do I connect or that kind of thing. They're waiting for people to connect with them potentially and yep. then they'll evaluate, don't want to follow you back. So that, yeah, that is interesting. Another thing is that when those institutions follow their affiliated physicians, 55% of the doctors they follow will mention the institution. So they will actively post about their institution. Interesting. Taking that teeny step of following your online physicians opens up all kinds of doors in terms of enabling that physician to be an ambassador for your institution. This research does not look at the impact on referral patterns, for example, and it doesn't look at the impact on uh, recruiting residents, and it doesn't look at the... um, I mean, it's really, it has a very narrow focus, right? It's looking at one thing, physician reputation score in the U.S. News and World Report best Mm -hmm. hospitals list. But it's not that hard to sort of extrapolate into those other areas. Yeah, it's not a big stretch. That's right. So there is more research to be done to prove that and to sort of prioritize, you know, which sorts of behaviors from hospitals are likely to drive what kinds of outcomes, But I think that by proxy, there's a good level of proof now that encouraging your physicians to maintain a public presence and engaging them online is really good for the reputation of a hospital. And that has all kinds of benefits, right? I mean, how many patients choose their hospital based on the recommendation of their physician? How many people are making referrals based on the reputation of the hospital that, you know, I think we've given some good proof is impacted by these online doctors. There are all kinds of things, ways that you could go um, and see what kind of impact it really has. One of the things that we're teeing up next um, is that Nate Pinnell and I and Yash Gad, who's our chief data scientist that, that really did the hardcore number crunching here, are actually going to be writing up this study for publication in a peer-reviewed journal. Nice. Uh, so we're going to go the academic route as well. But then we also have five years of historical data on physician reputation scores. Mm. And being able to do a look over time, I think, is going to provide a really interesting insight into whether there's not only correlation between these two items, but whether there's actually a causal relationship one way or another, uh, which I think could be pretty interesting. How would a hospital use this report or use this information? We talked about, you know, hey, there's some good data points or some good sound advice in here about the 
the advantage or you know to, to go follow these physicians mm-hmm. follow your local physicians but what what else can they glean or to kind of take from this so i think that there are i think there are a number of things that if if i'm putting on my hospital marketing or hospital communications hat uh, that i'd be able to do with this number one I know that it's rarely uh, the marketer or the communicator at the hospital that is the roadblock in terms of being able to be active and social to you know <laughs> right. go and actively follow clinicians and actively you know feature clinicians in, in content, that kind of thing. It's usually the marketer or the communicator that is the strongest advocate for those things. Sure. And so to some degree, we're preaching to the choir. But my hope is that this kind of report that's based in really, like, it's a significant set of data, right? I mean, we're talking about 50 institutions, 76,000 physicians. This is hardcore stuff, right? If you ever needed a proof point that what you're doing is important, I think this is going to help in that regard. So it can help in terms of the online activation that you want to do in your organization, but can also help just in terms of... uh, you know, physician relations, uh, mm-hmm. outreach to your doctors, uh, a point to be able to connect with them on. You know, if you want to, if you want to uh, make a proof point about why your doctors should come to, you know, the social media training that you've been offering for the last couple of years, and and people haven't haven't wanted to participate in, this is a great way to help them do that. You know, one of the things that we that we uh, we actually published a letter from the um, the head of Vanderbilt's uh, medical center who he wrote a blog post last year encouraging all their physicians to go vote in the uh, U.S. News and World Report uh, physician reputation rankings. Clearly, there is a belief that this U.S. News and World Report best hospitals ranking is an important thing. And I would say anything that you can take from this that will help you to potentially enhance that reputation, uh, not only with your you know, affiliated physicians, but with other physicians uh, that, you know, may be connected to them online, I think that could be of real benefit to the organization as well. I think that makes a lot of sense. And, I, you know, I think perception's reality. And people's perception is based off of a lot of these uh, rating and review sites, national awards, things like that. And U.S. News and World Report is one of those that I think has a uh, brand recognition amongst consumers that maybe some of the healthcare, mm-hmm. uh, some of the other healthcare awards maybe don't. You know, I, I don't know. So anyway, so I think this is great. And there's a ton of stuff in here. I mean, this is a really uh, a meaty uh, report with a lot of great information. And so if people want to, number one, where do they go to get the report itself? Sure. So there's a a link to it on the W2O blog, which is w2ogroup.com. So it's not hard to find there, but I think probably the easiest way to access it other than the show notes uh, would be just to find me on Twitter. It's my pinned tweet right now, so uh, easy to access from there. My Twitter account is Chimoose, C-H-I-M-O-O-S-E. Uh, and so you can access it directly from there. Awesome. Well, I encourage you, if you don't already, go follow Greg on Twitter. Uh, download the report. Uh, man, thanks for, thanks for coming on. Uh, this was great, and I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll probably do it again soon. It was a real pleasure. Thanks for having me, and uh, I'm going to enjoy uh, continuing to listen to the show. Thanks, man.
All right, and that brings us to the end, or relative end, of episode 71. Talking a little bit about Twitter and all things uh, Twitter and healthcare. It was kind of fun. We, we haven't talked specifically about a platform like this um, over the first 70 episodes. Mm-hmm. So we'll do more of these. Give us some feedback if you, if you like this and you want us to cover other things like YouTube or Facebook or whatever. Uh, let us know. We'll certainly give it our best. Great, great interview with Greg Matthews. That was, uh, it's really fascinating. I encourage you to go download the uh, the 2018 Social Oncology Report. So uh, links to that in the show notes, of course. What do you have for a recommendation this week? Reed, I mentioned to you when we first got on to record today that I've been binge-watching the show on Netflix that I'm definitely going to recommend. I'm a big fan of real-life crime, you know, like, yes. and, and Netflix has, has really developed its own in that regard. They have a lot of real-life crime documentaries and stuff. And one that just came out was a show that actually didn't start on um, Netflix. It actually started back in 2001, and they consider this show to be one of the first real crime documentaries that really took the format that we're used to now with. And this is called The Staircase. Nice. It started in 2003, uh, a guy who um, was accused of murdering his wife, a French documentarian came and actually started to film his story and film all of the legal proceedings and all the the investigations around it. The first series debuted in 2004. There were eight episodes that kind of followed it all the way up through the murder trial. I think it was aired at Sundance. And then, uh, and then what happened was, is that the same French documentarian came out and did a couple more episodes about ten years later, and then they just recently Netflix uh, uh, hired them to do three more, just kind of wrap up this series, yes. and it's really really interesting. I mean, you know, it's all of these stories. Whenever you think about it, it's kind of tragic. It's it's a it's a heartbreaking story. It's I'm not sympathetic to either side, but just watching how crime drama is played out in real life. And and of course, this is you know one of these, one of these that are you know dramatized obviously for recording purposes, but it's still really good, and I would recommend it highly. Thirteen episodes called The Staircase is on Netflix streaming as we speak. Yeah, I've been seeing that and have that uh, on my list, so I'll be uh, curious to jump in. So we too in my household like to watch uh, some true crime stuff and love documentaries. So that'd be awesome. Mine's a little bit different uh, for those that are Mac users. Uh, I'm sure, you know, or maybe you have, maybe you haven't, I guess, used uh, some of the Mac uh, applications, uh, I guess Mac developed applications, I should say. And so I really like Keynote. I use Keynote versus PowerPoint uh, and have for years. And that's always problematic everywhere I go. But I like it. I'm not recommending Keynote per se. But what I've done here recently, I've done a couple of presentations here recently where I'm actually presenting via my iPad. So Keynote on the iPad. Mm. And so I'm able to build mm-hmm. my presentation mm-hmm. you know, in front of my computer leading up to an event and then just airdrop that onto my iPad, go plug in uh, HDMI into my iPad. And man, it works so well. I mean, so well. I can make last minute edits really? and that kind of thing. Playing videos, the whole deal. You can use your phone as a remote, even. Hmm. It's great. It's really, really cool. And, um, you know, I mean, especially if it's just a local deal and I don't need to take my laptop and all that kind of stuff, I can just take my iPad and go. Keynote for the iPad, 
really, really well done and uh, makes it easy to, uh, to present. So that's my recommendation. Very cool. Very cool. And a good, good portable device to take with you when you're presenting. So awesome. Well, very Great. cool. Very awesome. cool. Uh, again, thanks for all the uh, support. Uh, thanks for the feedback. We've even had a couple of show ideas uh, come in here recently, and which is great. We appreciate that. So if you've got thoughts for additional or new episodes that we should, uh, topics we should cover, things like that, let us know. And we will uh, we'll certainly work to uh, make that happen. Uh, if you haven't, visit touchpoint.health. Check out our other shows. would love uh, some support there. Uh, certainly visit the sponsors, rate, review, subscribe, all that kind of good stuff. So for Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.